What's up, everybody? This is Rafael Garcia back for episode 72 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Today is January 25th, 2018. And as always, I'm back with Shawan Humes. How are you doing there, sir? How was your weekend and how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm doing doing great, man. It's actually, kind of a, what, you know, it actually was a busy weekend, mostly just basketball tryouts. But my kids made the regional team next year. If it goes well this year, then they'll be on the national team. So can't complain. So are you officially one step closer to being the next LeVar Ball? Can I just start calling you that now? No, I don't I don't sabotage coaches. I just try to help my kids. Listen, man, but he just I, sabotaged I do, I do one, one coach. Thing about him. Very few people in their lives will ever have a parent who believes in them like LeVar Ball believes in his children. So I can see why people are a fan of him because, you, you know, there's so many parents who just don't give their kids that confidence and won't go over and above for their kids. And if that's one thing... If people ever compared me to him on that front, I'll be happy. That'll be good enough for me. Dude, he, I mean, he may may or may not have um, sabotaged one referee, but I don't know about any uh, coaches. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just joking. Oh yeah, yeah, that was ridiculous. He, he does, he, he makes himself a hard person to like. Like he starts off really well, and then just like, come on, man. Yeah, he's definitely he's 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 quite the act, quite the act. So, um, as always, man, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we have quite a bit to talk about. Last weekend was very busy when it came to the world of mixed martial arts. We have two events to talk about from last week. We got two events to talk about this week. Um, so yeah, man, we got quite a bit to talk about. So let's go ahead and try to jump right into things, and let's start off first and foremost with uh, UFC 220, where actually, you know what, what news do we have to talk about this week? Um, we can come back to the news, but we'll come back to the news after we do these recaps. But um, UFC 220, where we got to saw, oh, excuse me, we got to see UFC champion uh, Stipe Miocic not only make history as he became the first man to defend the title three times, but he uh, also defeated uh, Francis Ngannou, and he basically took all five rounds from the African fighter, and he he did what you've been talking about him doing for such a long time, where he went out there, he counterstruck, and he out-wrestled uh, Ngannou for 25 minutes. Ngannou had his moments, he landed some big shots, but nothing that was really ever enough to put the Cleveland native away. So let's talk about that first and foremost. I mean, what did you see in this main event fight? Yeah, um, it's pretty much what I expected, to be honest. The only question was... The only two questions I had was, was Ngannou's power, power going to be too much for Stipe? Because the fact of the matter is, no matter how good you are defensively, how good you are offensively, at some point in a fight, boxing match, kickboxing, MMA, you're going to get hit, and you're going to get hit clean. And it was just a matter of whether Stipe could take it. And then on the opposite end, my question was, we ain't seen Ngannou really take any real heat or really take any real pressure. So does he fold up? In both cases, uh, Stipe's chin held up, as did Francis and Ganu's. And from that point on, it just became a matter of experience. Stipe has been in tough positions. He's been tired. He's been exhausted. He's been beat up. He's taken big shots. He was able to draw on his experience and and let that guide him through those rough spots. And Ganu just looked totally outmatched. He looked like he didn't have any plans. He didn't have any backup plan. He came in, It looked like he came in with one game plan. And once that game plan wasn't effective, he didn't have anything else for Stipe. I mean, in the first round, when his athleticism was was at its peak, he was landing shots, he was getting up from takedowns, he was defending takedowns. But the minute he wasn't fresh, the minute he wasn't at his peak, uh, there was just a drop-off in production, a clear drop-off in technique, if there was any really to begin with. 
and just uh, a drop off and punch resistance and ability to uh, get back up when taken down. So essentially, I mean, he just got exposed for a lack of experience and a lack of diversity in his skill set. And to be honest, I think Overeem could have done something similar. The, the difference being his chin isn't quite as quite as legitimate as Stipe's, but Overeem had the skill set from striking to grappling to wrestling to have tested, just fought in a very dumb manner. Stipe, on the other hand, fought like a veteran. He took all the experience, all his different skills, and he put them all on display and took Ngannou's athleticism and his size and his power out of the equation. So we have quite a couple of different things to talk about there from that just to just begin. Let's talk about Stipe first. Um, a lot of people are leveraging the fact that he defended this title for the third time and that he's was doing so great. And I mean, he's defeated Ngannou now. He's defeated Overeem. He's defeated so many men that have been put in front of him. When you think about heavyweights and mixed martial arts, do you think he is the greatest of all time? Well, if you go by the logic that the UFC is the biggest organization in the world, the most legitimate organization, it's hard not to say that because you think about it that way, there's been other guys who've held the title, all-time greats, Andre Orlovsky, Tim Sylvia, Kane Velasquez, Junior DeSantos, all those guys held it and they can never defend it three times. And then you can think about the you could think about the all-time great guys who never actually won the legitimate UFC heavyweight championship, such as um, Overeem and uh, Big Nog. Guys never competed for it. Fedor never competed for it. But you have a lot, of, a long list of guys who either never he held the belt or never, never able to defend the belt. And then when you look at the number of guys he's beaten, the names of the guys he's beaten, it's been guys who are Hall of Famers. Fabricio Werdum is going to be a Hall of Famer. It, it, uh, in mixed martial arts. Overeem is already a Hall of Famer. Cain Velocity is a Hall of Famer. But a lot of the guys he's beaten, Verdum, Overeem, those are two Hall of Famers right there. You know, he's beaten two Hall of Famers back to back. One for the title, one to defend the title. Uh, I forgot who else he defended the title against. Who are you talking about here? Who, uh, who are you talking about? Um, Stipe. He defended it against, um, was it JDS? Yeah, there you go. He defended against and JDS. Defending it against JDS, who's a, who's a guy who once again would be another all-time great guy in the heavyweight division. So the guys he's beaten are the other dominant fighters in his weight division. And yeah, they might have lost a step, but the fact of the matter is most of them, um, and Junior's side was coming off a dominant win. Overeem was on a win streak, and Verdun was the champion when he got it. And he was looking like he was going to be a dominant champion too. And then he also beat Mark Hunt. I mean, he's beaten the who's who of the heavyweight division, partly because the division evolved like most of the division, but he's beaten all the named guys. It's not his fault it's the same named guys from 10 years ago. They're still winning fights. They're still challenging for belts. They're, they're still high in the rankings, and he beat them all. And he, defended, he did something that no other heavyweight champion had been able to do in UFC history. So I don't know if that necessarily makes him the number one GOAT, greatest of all time as far as heavyweight, it makes him no less than number two, and most likely he's going to be number one because the UFC's considered the biggest organization with the best competition, and he competed in the biggest organization, won their belt, and beat all the best guys on the way up and to maintain his position as a champion. So do you think that, that this run, I mean, I'm looking at his record right now where he is a winner of five straight, six straight, and during that run he's defeated Mark Hunt on
Andre Olaski, Wardoom, Overeem, JDS, and Nganu. Do you think this is enough of a run to put him over um, Fedor? A lot. Of, I, I would. Ha I mean, to be if you go just by the quality of opposition, you have to say yes because all. The, I mean, Fedor is beating some of these guys too, but a lot of the guys that Fedor built his reputation up over weren't guys who weren't as good of mixed martial artists when he beat him. When Fedor beat Mark Hunt, Mark Hunt had no real mixed martial arts skills. He was just a big, strong guy with a kickboxing background. Um, Stipe probably beat the best version of Mark Hunt that we had seen in mixed martial arts, period. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of people had some, some questions about the guys that Fedor beat him and the point he beat him at. None of those questions really exist with Stipe. And the, the biggest factor is gonna be that a lot of people just don't, a lot of people believe that Fedor is just a made up, a made up guy. I think he's one of the better heavyweights, if not the best heavyweight. But if Stipe continues along this track, it's going to be hard to say otherwise because Fedor has a loss to Verdum by submission. Stipe knocked that guy out in the first round. So even though it's MMA math and it doesn't really make sense, it's going to be hard to start arguing those points when Stipe's beating guys who other, heavy, who other qualified heavyweights couldn't beat. Stipe's beating guys who've already beaten the other guys who would challenge him for the position as all-time great heavyweight. You know, he's beating Verdum. Who already beat Fedor, already beat Kane. He's beaten JDS, he's already beaten Overeem. So the guys who are in the top five for that all-time great heavyweight heavyweight fighter, he's already beat, he's either beaten them or he's beaten the guys who've beaten them. So it's gonna be hard to argue anything else. I'm definitely wanna agree with you there, man. So what is next for him? It's actually interesting that Stefan Struve has been made and has been placed in a co-main event um, bout and you know, he's the last man to stop. Uh, can you turn me down a little bit on, on your side? I can hear the echo still. But um, yeah, Stefan Strew's been book, booked up in a main event up against um, Andre Olavsky, actually, at UFC 220 in March. Do you think this has been kind of positioned that way in hopes that Strew gets the win and they can slate him against uh, Miocic in the future? Because remember, um, Stefan Strew is the last guy to finish. He's the only guy to actually finish Stipe, and he did so six years ago, back in um, 2012. Do you think that's that's the purpose behind making that fight? I'd have to assume so. A rematch with Verdun. Verdun got knocked out in one round, so there's not much of an interest in there. Overeem's Overeem got defeated, got knocked out, so there's not much interest there. Junior DeSantos is still on suspension. He's already beat Mar most of the guys who would be available to fight or close to a fight. The fights weren't competitive. They don't draw any money. There's no story to build the fight off of for Stipe. The worst part about Stipe is he doesn't help sell fights. All he does is fight, cares himself a class. He's a great guy, great husband. We know all that, but he doesn't sell fights. And they're trying to create storylines that can help generate pay-per-view so that hopefully he can make some money and the UFC can make some money off him because he doesn't seem to have a, a willingness to be open or that kind of charisma. He hasn't shown that kind of charisma to draw people in and get people who aren't hardcore fans or Cleveland fans to buy into him. So, so it looks like they're trying to set up the fight with Strew because if Strew wins, you have a storyline, this guy knocked this guy out, he knocked out the greatest of all time, can he do it again? I mean, really, the only options he has as far as viable storylines would be Struve or waiting for Cain Velasquez to come back. Because the way Stipe presents himself and the way he is before and after fights on the microphone, he doesn't draw eyes, he doesn't draw interest. And so it's very hard to market him and it's very hard to push a guy who doesn't want to engage on a certain level 
to push the promotion forward or push the fight forward. In fact, as much as he may hate the fact that Ngannou was pushed over him, if this does good sales as far as pay-per-views, he's gonna have to he's gonna have to thank Ngannou because it's Ngannou's knockout streak and it's Ngannou's talk and his presence and his charm and his charisma which sold this pay-per-view. Stipe didn't really do anything to save the pay-per-view except I'm overlooked, I'm pissed, I'm mad, I'm not afraid of him, let my fist do the talking. That doesn't sell pay-per-views. That doesn't draw eyes. That isn't a storyline they can sell. So you have to put Stipe on the side of somebody who's got a good Q rating or a person who's got a storyline that might draw interest. Stipe is not going to, he might knock everybody out, he might be the very best, he will do nothing to sell a fight for you. Not, not if your life depends on it. Yeah, I mean, I think it would definitely be interesting to see what the what the buy rate was for this card. Because, I mean, I heard that so far it was trending pretty well. I haven't really looked into it since. But it would be interesting, interesting to see what that buy rate is when it's um, all said and done. So let's talk about Nganu too as well. Because news broke earlier today that he's taking some time away from MMA, which I think is, is, is the right move for him. Um, he's only been in the UFC for six years, uh, excuse me, six fights. He's only been fighting for five years, I believe. So I think that this is the right move for him to take some time away if he is taking time away to continue training and building his skills, kind of the way that Roy McDonald did when he was younger, kind of the way that Miles Jury did when he took some time off. Gunnar Nelson did the same as well. What are your thoughts about him stepping away from the sport? And if you were his coaches, what would you have him working on while he was gone? Well, the best thing, I mean, even if he would have won, I would just suggest him take some time off because he's fought a lot. Like he said before, he's fought a lot in the past couple of years. I know what he's had, like three, four, five fights in the past two years. I think he's fought six times. Six times, I mean, who fights six times in two years in the UFC? Not not That's champions, I'll tell you that much. Not not the, champions. You know the lightweight champion of the world doesn't fight that many times in, the, in Maybe years. Maybe Demetrius Johnson, that's it. Yeah, Demetrius Johnson, Donald Rosserone, when he goes on one of his crazy streaks of just calling whoever out who will fight. I mean, that's just not normal, especially for a heavyweight. Especially for a heavyweight. I know the fights are short, but that's a lot of fighting for anybody, especially a heavyweight. So I think it's good for him to take time off. Secondly... He showed that he has he has a very big gap in skill that needs to be addressed. And it's not going to be addressed over three months for a fight camp or over a couple months. He probably needs, in my opinion, he probably should take six months to a year off and really just work on fleshing out and rounding out his skills so that he can have, he can have a better offering. Because just based off his athleticism and his power, there's a lot of guys in the heavyweight division he can beat. He just can't beat Stipe. Maybe not Verdum. Verdum's kind of losing his step, so maybe he could beat him too. But there's a lot of guys he can beat. Just if he doesn't change one thing, he can beat a ton of guys. So he's got to have the incentive to take the time off and kind of reconfigure his game so that he can develop. Um, I don't know what to say about his coaches. I don't think they're bad coaches. I don't really know much about them. But the problem, I have a big problem with his coaches. Now, I've talked to one of Stipe's coaches, Joe Delguy, Joe, De, Joe Degood. I always mess the name up. But he's a boxing coach at Stipe's, and we talked about the fight, and he was telling me there's no way Ngannou's going to win. There's too much experience. He just didn't have enough tools. And I get all that. I get all that. But my argument was this. Even if you're outgunned, even if you don't have the skill set, it's something that Stephen Wright told us. If you come back to the corner, your corner is supposed to have an answer for you. Whether you can execute it or not is up to you. But your corner is supposed to have an answer for you regarding what you should do in a fight. And Ngannou's corner had no answers for him. They didn't have a technical suggestion. They didn't have a strategical suggestion. 
They didn't have anything. They're just telling him nonsense. Some, nothing that could have helped him at all. And even if he's totally outgunned and outclassed, there's no excuse for being, how can I put it? There's no excuse for him. There's no excuse for him being so unaware and unprepared to fight Sipe. And what I mean by that is, he shouldn't have been caught so off guard by what Stipe was doing. That means they lacked the right sparring. That means they lacked the right preparation to get him to execute in the fight. They, they, didn't, they didn't have anybody who could push him. They didn't have anybody who could test him. They didn't have anybody who could exhaust him. And as a result, he was totally overwhelmed when he got in the fight. And, and you know this, if you're, in a, if you're training and basically you have a guy and you let a guy take you down or you let a guy put you in a situation, submission, you know in the back of your mind you can escape, correct? Correct. Like you have that, you have that, that, that thought in the back of your mind. So it's not good enough to let himself be put on the back. It's not good enough to let himself be held against the cage or let himself be pressured because in the back of his mind he knows if I flip the switch, this guy is toast. You need to put him in positions where he can't get out, when someone is forcing him to his back, forcing him against the cage, pushing him back with pressure, because that's when you really develop the awareness when you don't have an option of just exploding out, or you don't have an option of using your power to get out, where you have to think and process and go through the steps necessary to escape, avoid punches, counter punches, get back up, defend submissions, improve position. And they clearly did not have him prepared for that. He was totally, he was totally unprepared for any resistance. The minute he met any resistance, it's like he was in shock, which means that he didn't get good sparring, they didn't, they didn't mentally prepare him properly, and they sent him out there thinking he was just going to blow through Stipe. And I don't know why you would think you would blow through um, a two-time defending heavyweight champion who's essentially run through the whole entire division in his run in the UFC. He just wasn't prepared properly, and I'm not sure that he doesn't need to find another camp or at least bring somebody else into the camp to uh, help with this preparation in the direction that he's going. Yeah, I'm not going to um, disagree with you there because there were a lot of open spaces for improvement. I think like Luke Thomas pointed this out and Joe Rogan did during the um, during the actual the broadcast of the fight when he was in side control on bottom and he was just basically trying to reach up, reaching his arm straight out to grab a hold of um, Stipe and hold him down. I mean, he wasn't digging for underhooks or anything like that, and that's a serious issue. I mean, if he does that against someone like Werdum or even Overeem or something like that, they're going to snatch his arm and rip it off. So, like, that's a, um, a serious concern. Yeah, you know, people are going to struggle to get him down onto the ground, but, I mean, after after this fight, you know, there's a there's a blueprint on how to defeat him. Executing it may be difficult, but there's definitely the blueprint that's out there now on, on how to defeat him, and his team around him needs to uh, develop his skill set, or he needs to go somewhere where he can get the help that he needs to build that skill set. I, I really think a lot of it is that sparring where, like, I, I, tell, I, have, I have friends who are boxing coaches, and it's like, if the first time you're going into a fight, you see a guy and he throws a jab and the guy slips it and counters it, and you see that look of shock on somebody's face. You should never, the, the first time you get countered, the first time you get taken down, the first time you get pressured, should never be in a live fight. You should have already experienced that on some level in your sparring. You know, even, even because obviously they felt that whatever skills he had was enough, but that means you didn't have good enough guys in there to force him to go to a plan B. You have to have guys who are good, like what this John Jones says, I get beat up all the time in the gym. Demetrius Johnson get beat up all the time in the gym. All the best guys are getting pushed and beaten up or worn out in some kind of range 
that forces them to have to develop. It forces them to develop that mental toughness, that mental acuity, and the technical skills because they're like, hey, if this guy who's one and one in mixed martial arts is taking me down and roughing me up, what's the guy who's beaten seven world-class fighters in a row who's challenging for my title gonna do? It gives you that edge, it gives you that, that, uh, that need to improve and that desire to get better, even if it's just, just out of self-preservation. He didn't have that. He just seemed so sure of himself. And could you imagine having his athletic skills and not knowing how to grapple? I mean, like, if I had one-tenth of his athleticism, you know, who knows? Maybe I'd be a world-class grappler if I knew how to get, grapple really well. I mean, he's got tools that that allow him to jump the line, and he just has, in a sense, kind of wasted them because he hasn't developed the skills. And I don't know if that's on him refusing to learn the skills or it's on his camp for not actively teaching him the skills and putting him in with sparring partners who could force him to have to develop and respect those skills. Yeah, definitely. It'll be interesting to see what he's doing over this time off. I hope um, that comes out, what he does while he's out, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see kind of how his um, career go, grows from here. But let's move yeah. on. Um, from will, uh, I feel kind of bad. Every time Dana White gives you that seal of approval, it pretty much means you're lining up for a loss. Basically there. And, I mean, let's let's look at the co-main event here where Daniel Cormier defeated Volkan Uzdemir in the second round of their fight, TKO via stoppage here. Um what did you see here, man? It looked like Cormier was getting pushed a little bit at the start, but he basically used his wrestling to, to take over, got to a dominant position, and, and got the ooze out of there pretty soundly. Um, and Uzdemir talked about not really being hurt, but just being in a position where he couldn't answer and, and, and couldn't respond in any shape or form. So what are your thoughts about what you saw in this coming event? Yeah, uh, the fight, it pretty much, I mean, we were talking about the fight before, and I said there's really no way that, Volkan can win this. Cormier's the all-round better athlete, the more experienced fighter, the higher caliber fighter, better grappler, and the better wrestler. The only the advantage he had, Volkan had, was that he's a better kickboxer. In theory, he's a better kickboxer and has the bigger power. But once again, if you look at who he knocked out, um, Serkinov, he, he knocked out um, Manawa. That, that's not really all that impressive. They're not the toughest guys in the world. They're not the most established fighters in the world. So all of a sudden, those wins look a little bit less dominant. They look a little bit less impressive because those guys weren't able to put him in a position where he could be tested. It's almost like a lower-class version of Nganu. He was just blowing guys out, but it was guys who weren't particularly elite. Even the OSP win, that was kind of a back-and-forth fight. He didn't walk through OSP. He didn't dominate him. That was kind of a back-and-forth fight, and OSP's got a very shallow skill set. He's very physically gifted, but he's got a very shallow skill set. It seemed like his only impression, his only advice, or his only goal was to come out there and to put pressure on Cormier and kind of try and catch him early. Like, I'm going to put some heat on him, put some pressure on him, put some volume on him, make him work, and see if I can catch him and overwhelm him. And the minute he couldn't really, DC realized he couldn't really hurt him, and he couldn't make DC go away, DC just ramped up the pressure, got his hands on him, and just wore him down. I mean, even when he was defending in the clinch and he was countering, trying to make DC work, to, in my opinion, he was losing the fight because there was no way he was going to win a clinch battle with DC. Even if he was doing the right techniques, even if he was doing the right, had the right idea, there was no way he's going to be able to match the physicality. There was no, reason, no way he's going to match the pace. And he couldn't. And eventually he got tired. DC got him down and eventually and basically finished him. It, it was pretty much what I expected. The only question I had was, was DC's chin gone? Was it going to get old overnight? If those two things didn't happen, there was no way he was going to lose this fight. The biggest question for me now is, at what point do we start looking at Henry Hooft a little, a little sideways? Because he has a habit of having these fighters who 
have a high level of attribute, talent, explosiveness, athleticism, movement, all that kind of stuff. But it seems like the minute they get pressure on them, their technique seems to fall all apart. They're not, they don't seem to be very good defensively. They don't seem to be able to think on their feet very well. And as a coach, he seems to be a guy who comes up with a game plan and if his game plan does not work, he's got nothing else for you. He doesn't have any advice. He doesn't have any adjustments. It's either the game plan he has is going to work and win you the fight, or you're essentially gonna lose because he has no other ideas once his game plan fails. Yeah, um, who else on his team would you, would you characterize like that? Say that again. Who else on his team would you characterize like that? Um, Anthony Johnson would have been one of the first people to agree. I think. I mean, Luke Rockall just started working with him, but Anthony Johnson, John, Joshua, excuse me, Anthony Joshua, that's the boxer. Anthony Johnson, <laughs> um, Vulcan, Michael Johnson is another guy. They have these game plans, but they don't execute very well. They're not defensively very sound, and the game plans are pretty basic. They're not very layered, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. But those three guys get put got once they were put in tough tough position, essentially cracked. Johnson cracked two times against Cormier. Michael Johnson cracked against Justin Gaethje and against Darren Elkins. And the first time um, Ozdemir had real pressure put on him, he cracked too. It's like when their athleticism can allow them to dictate pace and control things, they're fine. The minute that's no longer the issue, the minute they can't completely dominate you and control you with their aggression and their athleticism, None of those guys look as dominant as they usually look. Yeah, I'm, uh, that's some um, interesting breakdown there because uh, I, you know, I wouldn't have thought about that in that way. Uh, and, it, and it will be interesting to see what Luke Rocco does um, with his title fight coming up um, against uh, Yoel Romero next month. So that'll be something to uh, keep an eye on there. So if you yeah, were Dan... One thing. I don't mean to hate on Henry Hoop. But we give these trainers, you know, when they're winning, Greg Jackson, Henry Hooves, everybody gets a lot of credit when they win. That's fine. But it's like Stephen Wright said, we win a team as we lose a team. So if you're going to take all the credit and say, I came with this game plan. I got this guy got my hands working. He's a good MMA coach. Then you got you got to start asking questions when you notice a pattern on the opposite end. Because when somebody wins, everybody wants to imitate Jackson's. Everybody wants to imitate ATT. Okay, this guy's had three different fighters who are all superior athletes. And they've all lost in the same situations when they got pressured and their athleticism wasn't, wasn't enough to win the fight right away. So shouldn't we start asking some questions about the coaches? It's not enough to just ask about the fighters. He's preparing them. He's right front and center when they win. So I think there should be some questions about what he's doing and how he's doing it when they lose. Okay. I'm not, I'm not even going to argue with you there because that is some very good uh... – uh, analysis there when looking at how coaches are rated, I guess, for when their fighters uh, perform. What would you do next if you were uh, working with Daniel Cormier? Uh, there were some talks about him moving up to heavyweight. Would you be interested in seeing him fighting against Steve Miocic when in reality much of the uh, light heavyweight division has been cleared out? Uh, Misha Shukurnoff was supposed to be a, another top contender, and he kind of fell by the wayside. Uh, obviously, they've all him and Alexander Gustafsson are already fought uh, Anthony Johnson's away from the sport. Uh, Uzdemir is gone. I mean, you have Ovin St. Prue that's out there, but that doesn't really look like too much of an interesting fight for Daniel Cormier. So would you be in support of him moving up to heavyweight and challenging uh, Sipe to become a two-division champion? Um, 
I mean, the Stipe fight would be the only fight that would be a big fight as far as like a really challenging fight right now. It seems like, like you said, there's nobody really in the division who can challenge him. I mean, I guess Gustafsson. The biggest question is always going to be, is Daniel going to get old overnight? Is he going to lose his durability overnight? If he stays durable, if he stays with a, the ability to fight at a pace and keep his maintain his pressure and activity, I don't see anybody beating him. Nobody's that has shown that many layers and that kind of high IQ in the cage. Nobody else has shown that kind of one-shot kind of power. And even if they have, we've already seen him against big hitters. He's taking Anthony Johnson's best shots, and if you can take his best shots, pretty much nobody who's a one-punch kind of knockout artist is going to put you away either, unless, once again, you get older, your durability goes. He can defend his title another two, three times, but it's not going to be a big event. It's not going to be a big fight. The only big fight on the table for him right now is if John Jones gets put back in, or he has he fights Stipe. And as I understand it, he's not fighting him because of Kane. So pretty much, he's just going to defend his title, and then whenever he's ready to retire, retire. The only way he loses is if he actually loses a step, and at his age, being 38, any fight, he could go into it and just not have it. He really could. But if he goes in at 100%, I don't see anybody else beating him. And he's already beaten the majority of the division as it stands right now. So, I mean, there's nothing that's going to get him any big money. There's nothing that's going to get him the, the acclaim and the, give him the challenge that he wants outside of just defending his title. So he's kind of, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place right now. Well, he openly talked about retirement and like and having a hard deadline set for um, twenty nineteen, which you know is is next year. And as with the way time flies, you never like they can really come come quickly for him. That could be what two, three more fights tops. So if he is to retire in twenty nineteen, you really do see him walk away from the sport. Who are three guys you would want to see him fight before he's out? Um. I guess Gustafsson, who else is there? Teixeira, and light heavyweight, Gustafsson, Teixeira maybe, and I guess Stipe if possible. Probably Stipe, um, Gustafsson, and Glover in that, in that order. And most likely the Stipe fight's not gonna happen, I don't think, so it'd probably be Glover and Gustafsson. I wouldn't mind seeing a John Jones fight again. I just don't know if he's A, willing to do that, and B, if John Jones is gonna be instated fast enough for him to take that fight. Yeah, I can definitely uh, agree with that, there because we don't know what that looks like in any shape or form. So, let's talk about one more fight from UFC 220 before we move on, where we have Thomas Almeida losing to Rob Font. Um, this is a fight that I don't think a lot of people expected to go this way at all, and with Almeida taking a lot of damage, some people are, are con reconsidering what they thought of him. And actually, you know, a lot of people kind of look overlook Rob Font. I mean, it, it's happened so many times with his uh, track record. Looking at both of these two guys here, what, were you surprised with the way this fight went? And what would you do next with both men? Uh, I'm not terribly surprised. The biggest thing about it was Almeida, he's a very dynamic offensive fighter. He's explosive. He's powerful. But the thing is, his he takes a lot of damage. When you throw that kind of volume, you throw the kind of heat he throws, even if you're doing it in a technical, sharp manner, you're going to get hit. You, you can't throw that much volume and come in on people that aggressively and think you're not going to get hit. And he's gotten hit a whole lot. The, the biggest issue I had is I, I felt Font had something for him. Font could counter him. He could set him up, walk him into something, and then overwhelm him. I thought that was likely. But the, 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 the biggest issue is Almeida is so dynamic offensively, and he's such a better athlete with such better power that you figured at some point he would catch Font or turn it on and then overwhelm him. The thing about it is he was looked like he was on his way to overwhelming Font, 
but Font just was able to Font showed poise, he showed excellent control of distance and, and timing, and he was able to land some counters and some leads and put them away. That, that was essentially all it is. And Almeida's chin isn't good anymore. It's just not. Anybody who can really punch is a threat to put him out at any shot. He just doesn't have it anymore, and he's in a division full of guys who are knockout punchers. TJ Dillashaw, Cody Garbrandt, um, even Rob Font to a degree. I mean, these guys are all guys who are heavy, heavy, heavy hitters. Marlon Moraes, Jimmy Rivera, all these guys can hit. All these guys can hit, and they can hit really hard. So he, all the elite guys he could possibly face are capable of putting him out with one shot, and he's a guy who no longer has the chin necessary to stand up to it. So I think he's already hit his ceiling. I think if he keeps going, he can he can still win a lot of fights. He's just that dynamic, and he's a gritty, tough guy. But against the bigger hitters, unless he fights a textbook, perfectly defensively responsible fight, he's going to end up like this more times than not. I mean, and Rob Fonts, he's not even considered an elite guy. So now he's losing to guys who aren't elite now. That's not a really good sign either. How much, uh, so if, me personally, I, I'm, I'm a fan of fighters when they find themselves in this position to kind of take some time away and figure out what's next uh, for them. But definitely taking time away and kind of healing, kind of along the line of, way, along the line of the way that uh, the whole Troy did after his fight with Cub Swanson because that was a crazy battle that had to have taken some. Can you turn me down a little bit because I can still hear my echo on, on your end, but um, after Troy's loss to Swanson, we definitely saw how much that impacted him. So for Al Almeida, he's still young. I definitely think he should take some time away, not um, jump right back in. I know that's difficult for guys coming off of a loss, especially from a financial standpoint, telling them to take a step away when they're not making a lot of money to begin with is difficult, but to see guys continuously taking a lot of damage like that and dealing with it by trying to rush back in there and, and getting back into the fight game. It's just something that I'm not a, a, a fan of. So I definitely do agree that he needs to kind of take some time away and regroup from there. Yeah. Well, the time he takes away, he's got to like really not do anything, like not train, not anything, just chill out. But once again, you know, it's like they don't make that. It's funny because these guys don't make a lot of money and they constantly say that. But it's like, what position are you in financially where this this money that you say isn't that much, is that much of a necessity for you to survive, if you know what I'm saying. I get the point of it, and I'm not one to tell guys to step away or take it or to retire, because I'm not paying your bills. I don't take care of your kids, I don't take care of your family, it's not my place to say. But at what point do you look at the diminishing returns and decide, okay, I need to try another avenue? Because in his division, there's just so many big hitters. That's the biggest problem. There's not a lot of people you can fight who aren't capable of putting your lights out with any one shot. And Rob Font is not, a, I mean, he's a, good, he's a good fighter. He's an offensive guy. He can do that kind of damage. But he's not He's not considered like a uh, Cody Garbrandt with his power. He's not considered like a Jimmy Rivera with his power. He's, he's never been considered one of those guys. And the way he knocked him out makes me have some concern about Almeida's future going forward. Like I said, he can still win fights. But how much punishment is he going to take on the way to win those fights? I guess he could change his style, but does he have the temperament for it? Does he have the patience? Does he have the, the ability to process everything? I mean, this could just become a reoccurring thing, no matter how much time he takes off. And the thing we forget about the Korean Superboy is, yeah, they gave him time off, but who did they put him in with? The second biggest puncher in the division? That's not doing him any favors. 
Yeah, they definitely didn't do that man any favors at all. Um, they threw him right back into the deep end. And I wrote about that actually on ratings this week, talking about the way the UFC should look at how they redo um, booking some of their prospects, especially coming off of a loss. Because it's, it's difficult to see these guys get rattled like that and then get thrown headfirst back into the deep end. They try to they, – as odd as they do it correctly with some people, like they've done it correctly with Paige Van Zandt. She just – just has not lived up to the expectations, but then they missed the boat so badly on fighters such as um, Doho Choi and and, and and others. So what else from UFC 220 stood out to you? Like, were there any other big moments that kind of that, that shocked you or kind of made you think about fighters differently? For me, it was seeing um, Burroughs get knocked out by, um, what's the name, Cater or whatever. That was a big, that was, that, that was a great fight. I, Definitely enjoyed what I saw there and the way Cater pulled it out in the end. But for you, what uh, what stood out for you from UFC 220? That would have been the fight, the Burgos versus Cater, because it was the level of skill in the striking and the layers of skill in the striking. You had guys who were, who were making reads, making adjustments, not just slipping and getting away. They were standing right in the pocket, pivoting, entering on angles, exiting, circling out, walking a guy into right hooks attacking the head and the body, establishing the jab, building up, building their whole offense off a of busy, active, very jab. It's like, that's like the kind of striking you see in actual boxing or kickboxing. It's not very common in mixed martial arts. Usually you have a guy who's got a, a limited skill set in striking. He can fight at range. He can fight in the pocket. He can fight in the clinch. But everywhere else, he's kind of a victim. He's kind of short-sighted. In, in this fight, both guys showed a lot of defensive awareness. They showed a high level of, of offensive ability and they showed a high level of ability to counter when under duress. You know, it's not like they were just countering lazy jabs and lazy right hands of lazy left hooks. They were countering crisp, accurate, powerful shots. And it reminded me of one thing. A lot of guys say the level of wrestling has gotten better because you have guys, you have better level of wrestlers who can not just have the technical skills, but can maintain the pace necessary to really wrestle hard in a mixed martial arts fight. What a lot of people don't understand is in boxing or striking, if you have guys who really know what they're doing and it's high-level guys, the same shots that drop somebody, like the body shots that drop somebody or the leg kick that drop somebody, if you're really at that, that caliber of striking, you have to have a certain physical durability. And that's why a lot of striking fights don't, don't have that ebb and flow and don't have that high-level skill. You have guys avoiding whole sections of it because you have to be conditioned to a certain point to hang in that kind of fight. Some of those body shots, uh, Shane Burgos was throwing, those would have ended. Those would have ended a lot of fights. I mean, it's not just avoiding shots. When you're at that level, facing another guy of a high level of skill, you're gonna get hit. You have to roll with them. You have to parry them. You have to block them. Some of them you just have to eat and try to roll off of them. But you're gonna you're gonna get hit as much as you're hitting someone else. And a lot of guys don't have the mental conditioning nor the physical conditioning to compete at striking at that level. It doesn't look like like when people see Floyd Mayweather fight. Oh, he didn't get hit that much. He got hit a lot. He didn't get hit the way the other guy wanted to hit him. But make no mistake, Floyd gets touched a lot. And anybody who, who's, who understands striking understands that even when you're at your defensive best, those shots are hitting your shoulders, they're hitting your chest, they're hitting your back, they're hitting your side. It may not be the clean kill shots that people are thinking of, but you take a lot of abuse. And most guys just start mentally and physically tough enough. So it was interesting seeing guys who not just have the skill and the strategy and the ability to switch strategies and show off a full array of skills, but guys who could really take that level of punishment at that high a pace 
in a fight with a guy who knew what he's doing and knew how to place his shots and knew how to set up his shots and threw him with power and technique. That was very impressive. Yeah, it was definitely um, a good back and forth fight. I, I liked what I saw from both men, and I'm interested in seeing what comes next for uh, the winner there. Was there anything else from UFC 220 that caught your eye? No, I wasn't really too hyped about the card. I mean, nothing against it. I just, I, I was just not. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It, I mean, it was a. I think it was better than what people thought it would be. I, like I said earlier, I'm interested in seeing what the buy rates are for the show. I think it was a, it, it delivered in some ways that a lot of people weren't really expecting, but it didn't have that name power to kind of get people excited from the very jump. Other than the main event and the co-main event to a certain extent, it wasn't promoted from top to bottom, which you normally don't see. But it still didn't have those cachet fights throughout the card that really made people stop and say, I want to see this event. And I'm probably more worried about uh, UFC 221, I think that's the one with Robert Whitaker and, uh, excuse me, not Robert Whitaker, with uh, Rockhold and Yoel at the top of the card because that's really, I mean, it's in Australia, features all local talent, I mean, it, and it doesn't have any depth from, from top to bottom. So that's that card is probably going to do a lot worse. But uh, let's also, let's, let's look at another event that was going on Saturday with Bellator 192. We got Chell Sonnen versus Quentin Rampage Jackson. We got Aaron Pico on the card, Michael Chandler on the card. We got a great... Uh, title fight between Douglas Lima and Rory McDonald. So let's talk about that fight there. Unless, I mean, it's unfortunate that this fight was the main event, but we got to start with the main event with the fight between Chell Sonnen and Quentin Rampage Jackson. I mean, I didn't, I stopped watching at this point. I may have flipped back every now and then, but this is exactly what I thought it would be uh, with with Jackson pawing with his jab, not really doing too much, and uh, Sonnen getting takedowns. It was I was almost more surprised that he was getting the takedowns at will the way he was in, in the second and, and third round, but you know, Sonnen takes the unanimous decision and he moves on into the semis in the heavyweight, heavyweight Grand Prix. What were some of your thoughts about this fight there, and like, does this fight make you any more excited for this tournament as a whole? I really thought Rampage would give a better showing of himself after seeing how uh, Vanderlei Silva was able to... Because this fight was, was similar to the fight with Vanderlei Silva and Chelsea on it. The only difference is Vanderlei was able to score with big offense. He rocked Chel a couple times. He put him on his heels, put him on his butt once. Rampage was never able to land any... Re I mean, he landed shots to the body, and I'm sure they were punishing. According to interviews with Chael, they were really damaging. But he was able to, to, able to land anything really clean to put Chael on his heels and put him in position to be finished. And the most concerning thing was the fact that Rampage... I know he's afraid of the takedown, but for large periods of time in the fight, uh, Chael was actually outstriking him. He was throwing overhand shots, kicks, jabs. I mean, he wasn't doing anything super impressive or super high level but he's doing some basic fundamental things and he was outlanding he was outlanding rampage and he was out the door he was fighting at a higher pace and he was being defensively sound enough where rampage's power and physical strength wasn't able to to uh, show up in the striking exchanges the wrestling is what i expected um I, once again i'm kind of disappointed in him because he came out there and he fought a fight that was going to create opportunities for Chael to take him down. When he fought King Mo, he sat against the cage and kind of sagged in and dropped his hips. So King Mo had to really fight to get him off the cage and get takedowns. Instead, he just kind of fought in the open cage with um, with Sonnen, and he would you know throw the heavy punches, Sonnen would tie him up, and then bring him down. I think the only reason he didn't take him down more so was just because Rampage was so much bigger and so much stronger. But Rampage didn't have any second or third layer of defense when Chael would put the takedowns together, when Chael would take angles on him. 
so we could get the clean takedown. And I was kind of disappointed in Rampage. I mean, I, I understand he doesn't fight, like to fight wrestlers. I get that. But you fought the last three guys you fought have had wrestling or judo backgrounds, and it's like you haven't shown any ability to not just defend the takedowns better, but do something on the ground that can get you back on the feet without them scoring points or having control over you enough to win rounds. And, I mean, I understand he's not who he used to be. I understand he's not the greatest, most technical fighter in the world, but I just expect a little bit better from somebody who, with Rampage's pedigree and his his uh, career of success in mixed martial arts, you just think he would take full advantage of this kind of opportunity and to prove everybody wrong, and, and he came out and he didn't do it. He did the exact opposite. He fought the fight that Chael would have expected, and he got... And he didn't get dominated, like, beaten up, but he essentially got outworked and now smarted to a dominating loss. And that that's a little disappointing to me. Yeah, it was definitely a disappointing showing. And it's unfortunate because Rampage is continuing. You know he's going to be put right back in his main event slot next time he uh, fights, whether it's uh, he fights against Wanderlei, he fights against Chuck, whoever it may be, whoever Bellator brings in. You know he's going to be put right back in this main event slot. You have to wonder how many times can he do this before enough is enough. And to me personally, enough is enough. There's a list of guys on the Bellator roster that I could, couldn't care less. If I see them again, he's on that list. So is so is Chell. But uh, you know, for that organization, for their for the rest of their roster to grow, these are the men that fight fans pay attention to. Uh, we see that the fight ratings for Bellator 192 was around, it it, it averaged 800k, and at two points it did uh, hit in the millions. It hit in a million during the McDonald-Lima fight, but it hit like 1.3 during Sunday and, and, and Rampage. So you see these guys are drawing attention, but it's and that's why they're going to continuously be put in the position that that, that, that they are held. The heavyweight Grand Prix, the youngest guy on, a, on, on that in that slot is Ryan Bader. I think he's 33 years old. And so that really kind of shows you what they're working with when it comes from a depth uh, position. Well, I mean, it's like the strike force heavyweight tournament. They're just trying to, they're trying to draw attention. They're trying to, they're trying to draw eyes. If you think about it, when, when the King Mo and, and Rampage fought, that was the highest rating Bellator got in that year. It's one of the highest ratings they ever had. Um, Chael Sonnen's been behind two of the highest ratings they had when he fought Vanderlei and when he fought, um, Tito Ortiz. I mean, they're guys that casuals are familiar with. They're guys who know how to sell a fight. They have a certain charisma, a certain charm that allows them to appeal to people. You know, I mean, I watched Chael's promo he cut after the fight like three times. It was, it, it was kind of expected, but it was still funny. His, his delivery is great. And I mean, no offense to, to um, Rory and Lima, but if they would have been headlining the car, let's just take Chael and Rampage off. This car doesn't do those sort of numbers. Rory it doesn't at all, you're correct. If he was a draw, he'd still be in the UFC. They've, they're bringing him to be the draw to Canada. He's not a draw. That, Lima, Lima's never been a draw. He, he's just not. I mean, he's a great fighter. Fight fans care to see him. We respect the quality of the matchup, but these aren't the kind of guys who draw fans in. King Mo has a big fan base. Fedor still has, fan ba has a fan base. Um, Frank Mir, to agree, has a fan base. They're all better-known guys who've had long careers and sure they're on the decline, but they still evoke emotions for fans. They still evoke interest. And since everybody's on a similar level as far as their physical decline and their experience in the cage as far as the career length, it makes it more more exciting. Instead of it being like these guys against young, fresh heavyweights like Nganu, that might not appeal to people. But guys who are at weight disadvantages, guys who are clearly in physical decline, guys who are past their prime as, as far as their skill set, and their accomplishments. 
it makes the fights more intriguing and a little bit more competitive. And that's all people want to see when, they, when they're seeing uh, their favorite fighter. You want to see them in an intriguing fight, you want to see them in a competitive fight. And that, that's what people are signing on for. But you have, for MMA to get bigger, for Bellator to get bigger, they have to keep the lights on. You keep the lights on by having people put their money down for sponsorships, for commercials, for whatever they do. Chael, Rampage does that. Bader, Lawal does that. Fedor, Mir does that. Um, Lima versus McDonald, that's not selling. It, it never it never would, it never has, and it never will. Yeah, man, but let, but but it may not be selling, and we both agree on that, but that was a hell of a fight that we saw between these 170-pounders where we saw Roy McDonald finally get a title strapped around his waist when he won a unanimous de uh, decision victory. There's a couple of questions I have for you there. So first question, how did you have it scored going into the fifth round? Some people had it... Uh, 2-2, and some people had a 3-1 for uh, McDonald, but how did you have it scored when these two men started off the fifth round? I had a 2-2. I can see 3-1. There, there's, there's an argument to be made for 3-1, uh, but I had a 2-2. I thought when uh, he turned, when he turned the fight on late in the uh, third round, I think he did enough to take, the, to take the third round, even though for the majority of the round, he wasn't really in control, and he wasn't like, putting a whole lot of volume in controlling position. But the damage he did after that knockdown, I think, won him that round. And then, of course, the fourth round was his. But, um, yeah, I had a 2-2 going into the fifth. <laughs> Excuse me. So what was it that really kind of stood out for McDonald that helped him get it to um, that get that final round? Uh, the biggest thing is McDonald, he's like a real – he's like – one of the few mixed martial artists there are. And there's a lot of guys who are strikers, grapplers, wrestlers, who do mixed martial arts. Rory McDonald is actually a mixed martial artist. He can compete at a high level on the feet. He can box you, he can, he can, he can brawl, he can kickbox, he can almost fight at a karate range, he can grapple at a high level defensively and offensively. He can wrestle at a high level defensively and offensively. The biggest thing about it was his pressure, his physicality, and his ability to set up his takedowns and execute the takedowns. That was all, that was all it was. He, Lima, Lima is as dynamic as an athlete as he is. He's a dynamic athlete, he's a dynamic striker, but because of those two things, his, his IQ isn't always on point. When Roy took him down, Lima should have been trying to get back up. He should have been trying to force the scramble or get back to his feet because Roy didn't have much on his feet left. I mean, another couple of kicks, the fight probably would have been ended, but instead he started playing guard, being in the closed guard, tying him up, why, I don't know. And from that point, Rory was just able to control and drop hammers on him. I mean, Rory just fought a smarter fight. He was more self, he was more aware of the situation. He had a better cage IQ, and he was willing to do whatever it took to win the fight using the full array of skills. Lima settled for being on the bottom. He could have tried to scramble, he didn't even try. Didn't try to scramble, didn't really even try for a submission. He just was trying to tie Rory up to not take punishment in a fight that there's no way he could have thought he was ahead. At worst, at the best case scenario, it was a tie. At worst case scenario, he was down three to one. So why he scramble or create distance or get back to his feet, I will never understand. But to me, he kind of, I don't want to say he quit, but he kind of accepted the position. And that might just be him being tired. It might just be poor cage IQ. Well, for whatever reason, he accepted that position and basically lost himself the fight as a result. Once, he, once the takedown was, was um, executed, he didn't have anything else left. He, he didn't have anything else left for Rory, not at all. 
Yeah, man, it was definitely um, interesting to see, especially with Rory's leg looking like it was a, like his leg was growing an extra face or something like that. It was it was quite disgusting. And it, man, you got to be hella crazy, which you know a lot of people think McDonald is kind of tough that out and just dig his way through. Uh, it was so I mean, he pulled it out. In the other fights, he got hurt and he lost. He lost to Thompson when his nose got messed up. He lost to Lawler when his nose got messed up and he was concussed. This would have been another fight if he would have lost it. It would have been a fight where he took punishment, he took abuse, his body couldn't hold up to it, and he lost. And this is the first time he was able to execute, navigate the the, the rough waters, and pull out a win. Because the other two, the other three fights where he got really tested late, Miller Thompson, mentally he wasn't able to to bridge that gap and pull the fight out. This would have been the first fight where he was in real trouble, where he was really falling apart, and he still managed to gut it out and outsmart his opponent. The other the other fights he lost, and he lost pretty decisively. Yeah, definitely pretty uh, decisively there. So looking at Bellator's 170-pound division, what do you do next with that group? Who do you pair Lima up I mean, excuse me, who do you pair McDonald up against? Like, there's some interesting developments there, too, as well, because Paul Daly is claiming he has been released from the organization, uh, and he's gone. The organization is saying that that's not true. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Michael Chandler is talking about super fights and wanting to go up to welterweight, maybe come down a little bit to fight uh, Patricio Friere. So there's options there. But what do you do next with that division as a whole, looking at a new champion being put in place? There's so many different ways you can go. I mean, there's a couple. To, I mean, you have Korshkov. He's the – wait, or did he move to middleweight? I think he did move to middleweight. But even if he – even if he, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he could be talked into coming back down. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a few things. If Larkin could put another fighter win together, it's, it's the same discussion we have every time with Bellator. They've got some really high-level fighters, and then it just drops off. So there's like there's so few fights you can make at every division. I mean, this is one of the best fights they can make a division. That's done. Um, Lima's already beat Larkin, so you can't have Lima and Larkin rematch this soon. Now Daly's gone, so that's, in theory, Daly's gone. That's one less fighter. It's just they're so shallow in their depth that it makes it really hard to move the division forward. Um, I guess if Larkin can put together another win or two, you can have him fight Larkin. Um, there's always there's always a McDonald moving up, keeping his belt and moving up. I guess the biggest fight, as far as appeal and being a sexy kind of fight, would be if Chandler moves up the welterweight and they have t Chandler challenge McDonald. Chandler's a much better athlete, probably a much better wrestler. McDonald's a bigger, more skilled and more experienced fighter, and that should those things should offset one another. And you could make an event out of that. But as far as like fights that would really interest Rory and that would really challenge him as far as a strategical and technical level, I think those are few and far between. I think it'd be between him fighting fighting um, Chandler or maybe moving up and fighting Musasi. Would you be interested in a Chandler fight? Um, and how do you think that that fight will kind of play out? I would because, like I said, Chandler's a better athlete. He's a former champion. He's a... He's a big lightweight. He's he's proven that he might have to move up. Um, I would for, I would I would favor Rory. Chandler's got enough power and a, a dynamic athleticism that he could catch him and put him away. Over five rounds, I would expect Rory's physicality, his jab, and his own wrestling, to, his own wrestling and grappling, to be able to determine the pace of the fight than what it used to be. I mean, he got rocked by uh, Yamaguchi. He's not the most explosive guy or the hardest hitting guy, but he still would probably be coming in at least 15 to 20 pounds heavier than Chandler. 
And if he can get his hands on him and put some put some damage on him, I think he puts him away. Uh, most, I mean, he could win a decision, but it's it's more than likely that he uh, he knocks him out. He's a little bit more of a technically sound fighter as a grappler and technically sound on the feet. Chandler's a more dynamic athlete, but he's not a particularly greater creative striker, but he's a very dynamic and powerful one. That'll give Rory some problems early on. But if Rory can navigate that, which I fully expect him to do, he'll slowly walk him down and then take over the fight. And then I don't think he'll submit him, probably finish him by stoppage, by a PKO. Okay, okay, that's some good analysis there. That's some good um, some good analysis. That's definitely a fight that I, I would be interested in to see what would be next for him. And uh, let's kind of move on because we got two other fights from Bellator I would like to talk about. And we have Corrales versus Car- um, Georgie, what's his name, Car- Karakanian? There you go. I hope I said that right. And Aaron Pico versus San Cruchin. Um, man, the Aaron Pico fight, this guy's looking better and better every time he's stepping out there, and he still hasn't used his wrestling to kind of control the fight yet. I hope he's not getting to the point where he's falling in love with his striking so much that he forgets what kind of brought him to this game. He forgets where his bread and butter is. But um, let's talk about both of these fights here. What stood out for you for, for both of the winners here, and what would you do with them next? Uh, with Pico, the biggest thing that stands out to me is he's determined to face guys with winning records and guys he, at this point of his, this stage of his career, he should not be facing. He's kind of doing what Lomachenko does in boxing. He he's he he's only been a pro for what two, three fights, and he's constantly facing guys who are who it even though Kutchin might have just been a uh, might have been a, a journeyman, he's the kind of guy that you don't put your prospect in with at this stage because. He's got experience. He's got a lot of fights. He has an identity as a fighter. It's always a tough matchup. So that's the biggest thing that I noticed from him, that he seems intent on challenging himself. And if he keeps on going this route, by the time he starts fighting other young contenders, I think he's going to be walking all over them. Because when you fight guys with this kind of experience, like we were talking about with Arlene Sanchez, you fight guys with this kind of experience, it's like fighting 10 regular guys. So it's like he's, he's essentially almost a 10-fight veteran just off his last two fights because he's fighting guys who fight frequently, fight often, and, and are established as far as their identity and their experience in the cage. And I'm, I'm amazed by it. I, I applaud his courage, and I applaud his willingness to engage with these kind of, these kind of opponents. It's very impressive. It's much yeah, different than the usual prospects in, in Bellator. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in seeing what's next for Pico. He seems that he it seems like he wants to stay very active and and getting back out there as often as, as he possibly can. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing his next um performances next time stepping in the uh, cage. One more thing, real quick. I know he's a world class wrestler, but I mean, let's not forget he's been boxing since he was like what seven eight. He's yeah, not some guy who just picked up boxing. He's boxed at a fairly high level himself. I mean, he he may not be world class, but he's not too far off from it. Yeah, definitely. I would definitely agree with you there. Um, was there anything else from this card that stood out and, and caught your eye? What else was uh, important from you for you from Bellator 192? I, I thought Corrales' win was good. I think that's what is, is, is it his third or fourth fight in a row? I think it's his fourth. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what you gonna say about the death of Bellator? Very few guys put three, four, and five fights together, and he put it together and. He, he just outworked his opponent. He just outworked him and roughed him up and just kind of beat him up. And that was very impressive because that guy, while not an elite guy at that weight, is more than competent. And nobody would have predicted that he would have been essentially outworked like he was. So that was a very impressive fight. I don't know who they move him up with next. I guess he's going to get a name now. 
because he's beaten enough guys who were the, the third and second tier fighters. So I guess they're now going to give him another prospect or name fighter to go in against. Definitely, man. I'm looking forward to what's next. This is an interesting time in Bellator where they're still trying to kind of find their way, but they're slowly putting together a stable of newer talent that they can kind of depend upon and 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 grow. And there's a bevy of guys kind of coming in in the right direction. And I mean, they have Jack Swagger will be debuting this year. They still have Dylan Dennis on. Um, on the roster as well. Ed Ruth is still there. Kimbo Slice's son is still there. I mean, so they have a number of guys who are kind of growing slowly and, and surely. And it'll be interesting to see what is next for these um, competitors ac ac across the board. They, they definitely need to sign more mid-carters. I know people are, again, they want superstars, stars, superstars. The fact of the matter is those journeymen, those experienced with tough fighters, they're they're what makes any combat sport go. If you do not have enough of those legitimately skilled guys to fill up the middle, the high end of the, the lower end of the elite in the middle of the division, you can't ever really flesh out a division. You can't really build a star. You can't really build a brand. You have to have guys who are good enough and familiar enough to draw on fans and at least challenge your fighters on some level to help them improve. If you don't have that, no matter how many stars you have, you're going to knock all your stars off and you're not going to have a chance to build a division or really build stars because you're going to be having them go to murderer's row fighting the same four or five guys over and over. Definitely there, definitely that. Um, let's look forward to this weekend's cards where we have two events that, I'm not going to lie, aren't the biggest, aren't really on my radar. I will be watching one just simply because I will be working one of them where we have UFC on Fox 27, which is going to be in Charlotte this weekend, and we also have Bellator 193. On... Um, you, on the, the UFC on Fox card, I think that's Saturday, and the Bellator event is Friday. We have Jacare Sosa against Derek Brunson, a middleweight five-round main event here. I'm expecting Sosa to get the finish. Um, this is a rematch of their strike force bout where Sosa won, I think, in less than a minute and in, into the first round via knockout. I am expecting Sosa to get a submission finish this time around because we've seen Brunson have grappling problems in the past, even though he has wrestling abilities. What are your thoughts about this main event um, on, on, on Saturday? Does it really interest you at all? Uh, it's two guys who are stuck on the outside looking in in the middleweight division. Because Brunson's essentially lost every single big fight he's had. He lost against Jacare, he lost against Romero, he lost against Whitaker, he lost against Silva. Every big fight that's been the fight that's supposed to take him into superstardom and turn him into a legitimate contender, he's found a way to lose and lose decisively. And every time, in Jacare's, ca in Jacare's case, it's essentially the same thing. He hasn't won any big fights. His biggest fight would have been against Whitaker, and he was stopped. He, some would say dominated on the way to a stoppage loss. He, he just, he's never been able to win the biggest fights in the biggest spot. He did, he lost against Rockhold, he lost against Whitaker, and now he's facing Brunson. So it's like you have two guys who haven't been able to beat the best and are on the fringes of the top 10. So either guy wins, he's, they're not fighting Whitaker next, they're not fighting Romero next, they're not anywhere near the title fight. So it's like a fight that's important because you have two fairly highly ranked guys with talent, but it's not important because neither guy is anywhere near a title fight, and neither guy is really a legitimate top 10 guy in the truest sense of the world. They're top 10 because the middleweight division is so shaky. That's why they're top 10, not because they're just top 10 in and of themselves. Um, I don't really know who to say to win this fight. It's whoever can pressure. If Jacare pressure is Brunson, 
he can beat him up, knock him, counter him, knock him out, maybe even submit him. If Brunson can pressure Jacare, he can just basically blow him out. He's that kind of puncher. He's that kind of athlete. But both guys are so tremendously flawed. Brunson overextends and runs himself into punches and tends to get tired and get wild. Jacare, he's on the physical decline. He's not as dominant as he is physically. And like we spoke with when we had T.P. Grant on the show, his athleticism covered up a lot of holes in his wrestling and in his striking. And now that he's lost a step, is he going to be able to make that up with skills and experience and savvy? No, because he didn't develop those things. So it's kind of like a 50-50 fight. Whoever gets who first is probably going to win it. And there's talk of Derek Brunson calling for a title shot if he gets the win. Do you think that that happens? And would you put him in the title picture if he defeats uh, Jacare? I can't give him a title shot off of, off of beating a Machida who hadn't fought in like two years and beating uh, Dan Kelly. So you beat Daniel Kelly, Jacare coming off a loss, Machida coming off a loss in a two-year suspension, and you get a title shot? What sense does that even make? I mean, that's the that's the name of the game now, man. Like guys are putting putting themselves in a position I mean, where they, they want title shots over everything. Record? That's not. I mean, that's not a bad suggestion there at all. I'm not arguing with you. I'm definitely saying I I, I agree. I get what he's trying to do um, in leveraging for a title shot, but I mean, I, if if I was in charge, I wouldn't put him anywhere. He, of course, he's already lost to the champion by brutal knockout, and he's beating a guy who's already lost to the champion by brutal knockout, and he has lost to the guy who's number three in the division by brutal knockout. What what logic does he have to say that he wants a title fight? That's the name the of the game, winner. though, man. He lost the Whitaker. Where's his Where's his argument? That's the name of the game, though. Uh, win a fight, demand a, demand a title shot. That's the name of the game. Beating up Dan Kelly is enough to put you in a number one contenders fight. I guess according to according to Mr. Brunson, it is. I mean, fighting. I never fought, so I can only speak from a fan. But as far as the census makes, it makes none, and I don't care. I don't care if I was talking to him face to face. I'd be like, "Look, dude, you're a good fighter and all. This is ridiculous. There's no way you're in this title fight. That's like, I, I, I don't know what to compare it to. It, I, I have no idea what to compare it to. It's just like it's like beating the New York Jets and then getting to the Super Bowl. They're not even a playoff. I mean, yeah, but we beat them. So I want a Super Bowl shot. Are you nuts? I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. So let's look at some other some other um, objects from this card as well as we have Derek uh, excuse me Dennis Bermudez fighting Andre Feely this is really the only other fight that kind of leapt out to me as something that might be worth seeing uh, it's the co-main event as well too so it's, it's each of these individuals opportunity to kind of get some real attention put on them I'm expecting Bermudez to get the victory here but what are some of your thoughts on how this fight will will go out oh the, um, wait a minute. Bermudez and Feely right correct um once again, I don't, I don't know. Feely seems to have hit a ceiling when he's faced the better better prospects in his division. He's lost. He got smoked by Cater, Cutter. I, don't, I keep saying his name wrong. But he, he got defeated by him. He got highlight reel by Yari Rodriguez. And his last win was over Artem, Art, Artem um, Connor's boy. And while I'm a fan of Artem Lobov, and I know he's a tougher out than he looks, he's a, he's a kind of savvy and gritty journeyman type fighter the fact of the matter is this guy is not elite and he didn't even dominate him so I'd, I'd have to go Bermudez Bermudez is usually Bermudez is a comparable athlete 
he's actually had wins against a higher caliber guy, and even in his losses, he hasn't been he hasn't been stunningly knocked out for the most part, and he hasn't just been outclassed, and he's beaten a higher caliber of opposition. But once again, Bermudez is another guy who, once you get to a certain level of opposition, he starts finding ways to lose himself. He lost against Darren Elkins. It was a tight fight, but the fact of the matter is he lost when he fought um, uh, the Korean Zombie. He's coming. He's on a win streak. The Zombie hadn't fought in what a year, two, three years, and he got knocked out by the dude. So it's like once he gets to a certain caliber, he always finds ways to lose. Luckily for him, Andre Feely is not generally that caliber of fighter. Good athlete, some good striking, not particularly layered, not defensively responsible. His his overall mixed martial arts game isn't terribly cohesive, and I don't know if that's a matter of him or his camp, but he's a tough out, he's a physical guy, he's an aggressive guy, but in my opinion, he doesn't always fight the smartest, and he's not very defensively responsible. So Bermuda should be able to beat him, but and to be honest, Bermuda, I should I should be able to have faith that Bermudez is going to beat him, because Bermudez only loses to a certain caliber of fighter. Andre Feely is not that caliber of fighter. That being said, Bermudez is just a guy who will give you multiple chances to beat him. It just usually you have to be a certain caliber of fighter to take advantage of those. So I'm going to go Bermudez, but with the full idea that he's going to give Feely as many opportunities as he wants, and as a matter of Feely to take advantage of him, which Feely usually is not able to do against, against guys who can match his athleticism. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um that situation kind of playing out. Is there anything else from this card that really jumps out to you? In my opinion, this isn't a solid card. I'm interested in seeing what the ratings will be because this is a non-football weekend. Um, you know, it's that time of the year where everything is kind of quiet and it's and it's leading into the Royal Rumble. So maybe there's some options there. But what are you? Um, what are your thoughts on this fight here? Me one, and I did an article for another site, Combat Sports, Combat Press, where it's over. Caitlin Chukagan is moving down from Bantamweight to fight in the new flyweight division. It's like, that division is filling up fast. Like every girl who can get out is trying to get out of their division and get, get down to their ASAP. Probably trying to get a title shot before all the real killers show up. But she she was two and one at Bantamweight. She was at a huge size and weight disadvantage. So she's coming down to flyweight, and I'm interested to see how her kind of mobile dance around, kind of high volume, high activity, high high movement pace style works at a lower weight where you have girls who are going to be at the low, at the bigger, at banner weight, she had advantage in quickness and mobility. When you go down a weight, usually you have a, your power increases and your strength has a little bit more say in it, but your actual athleticism and your speed usually levels out because you're facing smaller fighters who've got basically comparable athleticism, if not superior athleticism. So I'm interested to see how her style changes. She kind of reminds me a little bit of a more kick-oriented Jessica I, but when you saw Jessica I move down, her striking wasn't nearly the factor it was at Bantamweight. Her striking and her quickness, all of a sudden her physicality and her strength and her grappling took hold. At Bantamweight, Chukagan wrestling wasn't really effective. Girls were too big and too strong. They could pressure her, they could throw her off and defend it and she wasn't physically strong enough, nor a good enough wrestler or grappler to, to make up for the lack of size and strength. At this weight, much like Jessica I, I expect to see her be a little bit more effective as far as her power, and I expect her to be a little bit more effective in her takedowns and her ability to control girls in clinches, um, just because she'll be fighting much smaller fighters now. Girls who are coming up in weight, who won't have, who, and she's been used to fighting girls who are 15, 20 pounds heavier than her, now she's going to be the one with the size advantage. So I'm looking forward to that. And then I did an article for MMA Ratings 
about a former strawweight um, prospect, Justine Kish, coming off the loss to Felice Herrick, is moving up a division. And um, I'm kind of interested to see, once again, how this move to flyweight impacts her. A lot of her advantages was her durability, her physical strength, and her athleticism. But now that she's moving up a weight division, she might find out, like, like Paige Van Zandt found out, that she can't physically manhandle people like she used to, and she can't take shots as much or to the same degree as she used to, which means she's going to have to be more precise in her offense and more varied in her offense and more precise in her defense. She can't just walk through shots to get those clinches and get those takedowns. And she's not going to be able to muscle people like she did because there's going to be women coming down from the division. So she'll still have that athleticism advantage as far as the quickness and explosiveness, but she won't be able to muscle anybody anymore. So a lot of the mistakes she makes in her grappling are going to have to get shorn up, and a lot of the mistakes she makes as far as being defensively responsible on the feet will have to be addressed because if they're not, she hasn't developed a jab or learned how to slip a shot or learn how to use her footwork and feints to get in on people cleanly, she's going to get lit up. She gets, she's getting lit, she's got lit up by Herrick, she's got lit up by Ansaroff, she's got lit up by Ashley Yoder. Those are all fairly small straw weights, average size straw weights. She might be facing girls who are coming down from 135. She ain't walking through that kind of power. So I'm hoping that she makes some adjustments in her approach and in her, in, gets back to the fundamentals of her skills to make her athleticism factor and not have her lack of durability and physical strength, at least as a determining factor, cost her wins or cost her um, her uh, potential as a prospect. But those are the two, those are the other two fights I'm looking forward to just because it's interesting and seeing how the flyweight division is just filling up so fast with so many women who just seem to be waiting for this division to be created. And it makes you wonder why the UFC waited so long when you got literally within a couple months of it, you've had like eight, nine, ten girls drop down and like another five from each division planning to. So that's, that's the other thing that interests me in this weekend. So looking at this women's flyweight division, who do you think is going to jump off the page first that's not the, the, the champion? Are we, are we making a mistake in looking at the wrong people in Jessica I who lost? Um, no, Jessica I got the win. Who, uh, Jessica I who yeah, won. Yeah, the close me. win. Yeah, the close win. Paige Van Zandt who lost or Valentina Shevchenko. Are we looking at the wrong people? Or is there someone else that's kind of brooding in the, in, in the background that is going to kind of shock this, this weight class and, and put themselves in a title shot or become the champion before without anyone really expecting it? I think, I think Chu Kagan, she comes from a good camp. I think, I mean, she fought, she fought at 25 very recently. And she's beaten other people who are ranked ahead of her in 25 right now. She's actually beaten two of the girls who are ranked higher than her. She beat one at Bantamweight. I think she beat another one at, uh, at Flyweight previously. So she has a good shot. Um, the, biggest, the biggest question is, it's, when people moving down and moving up, you just never really know how that weight cuts can affect them because they're used to having certain advantages. And as you know, having trained fighters and been around them, moving up or down a weight class really affect, really, really can change your whole style because there's certain advantages you have at a weight that no longer exist once you drop down or you move up. So it's really hard to tell. I would think Chukagan has a good chance. I would like to see Claudia Gedalia move up. I think she would be great at this weight division. Tatiana Suarez is another fighter who I'd like to see move up. Uh, Joanna Jandadric, I feel like she should move up too. I don't think she's always the way for her anymore. Those three are the people I expect to move up in the next year or two, and I would think would be the people who take over the who would take over the division. Uh, Shevchenko has a chance. But the thing about Shevchenko, it is the holes in her game translate to every single weight class because it's not about size or power or speed with her. She 
the problem is she doesn't know how to lead and she has no sense of urgency when she fights. She's only gonna take counters on what you give her. And if you don't give her a clear counter, she will let you pile up points and get a little get little bullshit chipping shots that are gonna win the win you a decision off of activity. Based off how the judges look at it. She has those she has that character flaw in her that allows people to make any fight a tough a tight fight with her and just win off activity because she's not gonna pull the trigger first and she's only gonna counter so much. So as good as she is, as dynamic and tough as she is and as a high level of striker as she is, her character flaws are what they're gonna limit her in really taking over. Anybody can beat Valentina because of the way she fights. She can beat anybody and anybody can beat her. And that's never a good way to be when you're in a newly formed division with world-class people coming in every other day. That's the problem for her and that's why I'm very suspect about saying that she's going to come in and um, walk through anybody because all her wins have been razor sharp wins. All her losses have been razor sharp. You tell me that can't follow suit, that doesn't change based off weight division. That's just who you are as a person. And that's something that's going to be hard for her to overcome as she moves down to this new weight division. She could very well lose her debut, to be quite honest. I'm not saying it's likely, but she could very well lose it. She does the same thing she always does. She could very well lose the fight, same way she lost against Nunes. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there. There's definitely some interesting kind of um, breakdown to kind of see. Oh, wait, wait. I was at Jesse Clark, the one who beat Rawlings and beat Van Zant. she's probably got the lead as far as the division because she's got two wins in the weight class. She wins one more. I'm pretty much going to have to guarantee she's going to get the next title fight. She might be able to get the next title fight just off of beating Van Zant, to be honest. Yeah, man, I'm I'm really interested in this weight class because I feel like it's wide open. There's so many different ways that the group can go that definitely kind of has my um, attention, and I'm looking forward to seeing who comes out on top because I think this is – the women's divisions are definitely intriguing to me. Um, straw weight is, is exciting. 125 look like, look, looks like it's going to be exciting as well. 135, I mean, 135 has definitely kind of changed since um, – Amanda, Amanda Nunez has, has been champion because she's defeated a lot of people. No one's kind of bubbled up to the top. But I think that the women's division have really come along in a way that put them over some of the men's groups um, a lot more than people are willing to say. Yeah, it, it's really hard. I mean, you have featherweight, which really is only one fighter. No really established world-class fighters. You got bantamweight, where... Like you said, the majority division's already been beaten by the champion, and there's no real interesting matchups, which is why she's trying to fight the featherweight champion. Um, strawweight's still competitive, but you have so many girls that have such a tough weight cut making up. That division is bending out as it seems. But the smaller weight, the, the smaller divisions for the women are always going to be more active because there's more women who, who fit in that age, that size range with that build and those frames. So those fights, are, those divisions are always going to be um, a little bit more even, even, evenly matched and have the higher quality of fights. As far as the flyweight division, I know that, I mean, we had Arlene on the show, so it's going to seem like we're being homers, but in my opinion, there's a good chance Montano actually defends and reigns for a while. I know people say she's inexperienced, she didn't really accomplish anything, but if you think about this, Roxanne and Barb Honchak were the best flyweights in the world. Even if she was out of the commission for a while, if you can give Brunson credit for beating Machida after two years, I can give Montano credit for beating Hunchak after so many years. But her and, and um, Mataferi were essentially the two best flyweights in the world. She's already beaten the two best flyweights. Everybody else is joining the flyweight class to prove that they can compete and they can win at it. 
she beat the two people, the two best people in there. And Roxanne was actually the most active flyweight at the time and fighting at the highest level. And she beat her. We can't, just because it wasn't in the situation we would like, doesn't mean we can overlook that. So, I mean, as far as it goes, as far as fighting the flyweight division and beating the quality of opposition, there's very few people who can say they beat a, better, a higher level of person in the flyweight division outside of Montagna. And that has to be acknowledged and that has to be respected. I know it's not a popular thing to say, but you're going to have to show me somebody who's got a better record at flyweight. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there at all. That like that division has some growing to do, and I think these women taking some of these fights to start off 2018 and kind of looking at the rest of the year is really going to help uh, break that up and see who really is going to rise to the to, to the top because it's it's a wide open group. It's kind of like when they brought lightweight back for the men. You thought that you know we thought BJ Penn and Sean Shirk were going to jump right to the top. I mean, Sean Shirk did become the champion, but he didn't remain there. And same thing with um, Kenny Florian, and, and we thought the same thing of, of it didn't really play out that way. And I think that this uh, flyweight division is going gonna, is gonna to kind of take the uh, same shape. Yeah, so we have... Ha it's like you're a new division. It's all, it's all... It's part of the reason why Roxanne looks so deflated after the win, because she knows the division is going to fill up very quick, and there's not going to be many chances for you to get that title shot before really becomes fleshed out and established. You know, that, that might have been her only shot, her best and only shot. And yeah, I, it, it really... A lot of girls trying to get in there right now because they know it's only going to get worse. It's it really could have been. Worse in that division. It really could have been there. So let's look at this Bellator card. Bellator 193, yeah, this card is definitely... If UFC on Fox 27 is flying under the radar, then Bellator 193 isn't even registering a, a, as a blip. Where we have Lorenz Larkin fighting Fernando Gonzalez looking to kind of correct um, his post UFC skid. I mean, he's dropped two fights in a row. He was uh, decisioned by Douglas Lima in, in a close fight, and then he was knocked out by Paul Daly a couple months later. Now he's looking at the fight 27-14 and 14, Fernando Gonzalez, who uh, is on a two-fight win streak. He's won let's see how many in Bellator. He's won one, two, three, four, five. He's seven and one in Bellator, and he's only lost a split decision to Michael Vidim Page. What is your What are your thoughts about this fight here? Should we really be that concerned about Lorenz Larkin and what we may see from the former um, contender come Friday? I mean, Larkin basically should win this fight. He's a better athlete. He's a better offensive striker. He's a more powerful striker. He should win this fight. Um, his opponent, while very experienced and very seasoned, is a step slow, isn't as powerful, and isn't as skilled offensively or defensively. The guy's fairly easy to hit. And if Michael Venom Page is able to beat you, and all he really is is some unique striking, but a lot of athleticism and flashiness, Larkin should be able to turn the same trick. The problem for Larkin is Larkin doesn't like pressure, and he gets kind of wild with his offense, and he can be countered. And once you land big on him, it's really hard not to land big on him again. Luckily, the guy he's facing isn't a big puncher, but you have to wonder how much damage was done by that knockout because Paul Daly isn't just an average guy who knocked you out. He's one of the biggest hitters in MMA history. Um, I still believe in Larkin. He's still a top in physical talent. You can't take away the wins he had at welterweight in the UFC. And beating, losing to Douglas Lima, there's no shame in that. Lima is one of the best fighters, welterweight fighters, in the world, there's no shame. Legit, he's he is le legit. Yeah, and, and on the feet, he's 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 good all around, but he's exceptionally effective on the ground. He's a he's a big guy. He could fight it. He could probably fight a middleweight, to be honest. 
and losing to Daly isn't the most embarrassing thing in the world because Daly is a top-end striker. I mean, he's kind of gotten predictable nowadays, but he's still a guy who can put anybody's lights out from welterweight to middleweight with that hook. But Larkin, and to be honest, I didn't think Larkin should get a title fight right in. I thought he should have been fighting this caliber guy and worked his way up to the title shot. I don't know how they talked him into it. I don't know why he agreed with it. He shouldn't have done that. He should have taken one or two fights, acclimate himself into it, and slowly work himself into shape and into form so he can be ready. Because as good as he is offensively, as I said, he can get a little wild with his hands. And defensively, he depends more on his athleticism and, his, and the threat of his offense to keep him safe than actual defensive maneuvers and techniques and skills. So he's always vulnerable to a certain degree. And when you're facing two of the more dynamic strikers, in mixed martial arts right now or in history, you can't have those kind of mistakes. When he was winning welterweight, he wasn't fighting guys who could put you out with one shot. Ponzinibbio wasn't that kind of guy. Jorge Masvidal wasn't that kind of guy. He, he wasn't fighting those kind of guys. And But the holes he had showed up at, in the UFC and they're showing up here. So in my opinion, he should be working against guys like this, building himself, getting his timing, addressing the holes he has, and moving on to the next step. I believe he wins this fight. And to be quite honest, he doesn't really have any choice but to win this fight. He doesn't, you're right. It's just catastrophic because he definitely doesn't have any choice. And now he's getting beat by guys who are really, at best, second, if not third tier fighter. He has to win this fight. I don't care if he does it impressively or not. He just has to win this fight. Totally agree. I'm hoping that he he does because it'd be one of the biggest regrets. Disappointments, yeah. That he came in as a top ranked welterweight coming off a win streak and then just turn around and completely fell apart in the in the Bellator cage. Yeah, I would, I'm definitely agreeing with everything that you said there. You brought up Paul Daly. As I mentioned um, a couple minutes ago, Paul Daly is supposedly a free agent. Um, and he is, he's saying he's a, he's a free agent. Bellator is saying he's not. If he is, and if we do see a situation where Daly is no longer contractually, contractually obligated to fight in Bellator, and you were in charge of USC, do you bring him in? I don't think so. I think he should go to Risen. I mean, I don't know why the UFC, he's not, I mean, the UFC wants ratings and they want names. He's not even popular in his own country. He's surely not really well-known. He had a hardcore, oh, it's great. I mean, it's not even a great signing. He's on the decline. He can't grapple. He can't wrestle. He, he's kind of gotten predictable as a striker. What is he going to do in the UFC? I mean, he could land a knockout shot, but is he really going to land it against Kareem, uh, against Usman? Usman's going to take him down. Kobe Covington's going to take him down. I don't know that he gets by Damian Maya, to be quite honest. I mean, no offense to the dude. I like him. He, he, he can talk. He can kind of sell a fight a little bit. He's exciting. He's a warrior. But he's a one-dimensional fighter who is on physical and technical decline. What's the UFC signing him for? He's not bringing in any fans. Nobody cares. Paul Daly signs in the UFC. Is that a big story? I mean, it's not a huge story, no. Not to me. I think he goes to Risen. And finishes out career there. I don't. I mean, the UFC could sign him. But I just don't know why they would. Another because he's not going to come cheap. He just came off and of knocking Lorenz Larkin out. He's not coming in cheap. He's not going in for low. He's not going to be lowballed and fight on prelims. He's going to win big money and big fights. And he's not worth either one of them. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you there either, man. I, 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 he is. He's someone that you can count on for a highlight real knockout if you put him in there with like a Brennan Ward or something like that. But yeah, you're correct. Once you throw him in there with guys like Kobe, Cub, I would. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing him fight Mike Perry. I, I, I could see that on a, on a uh, like a fight night or or, or Fox or something like that. There's fights that they could 
they could, that they could create in um, that's, UFC. That's for Daly, but what does that do? Let's just say he knocks out Perry. What does that do for the UFC? You have a guy who can't beat any of your top five contenders, knocking out one of your top ten contender. It doesn't do anything for them. It doesn't, but I mean, we're we're not at a, we're, remember we're not at a point anymore where rankings really don't matter at at, at this point in time. Well, if we say the rankings don't matter, then you have to bring something else. Let's say the rankings, the rankings just don't matter. It has to be an exciting fight, and it has to be a fight that will draw eyes. Perry versus Daly, I don't really know that anybody's too excited about seeing that. I mean, you can make Perry. I think that would be like a hard call. Like Hill, but, but Daly is going to want top-end money, and, they're not giving, and he's not going to want to fight Darren Hill. True, true, true. I'm not going to disagree with you there. Maybe I could be wrong, but he's going to want a certain kind of money, and... I don't think he's worth the money. I don't. I don't think he's worth the money as far as his appeal and his popularity. I just don't think he's worth it. Is he a good fighter? True, but his best win in the past couple of years is Lawrence Larkin, who's been proven to not be necessarily an elite welterweight, close to elite, but not an elite welterweight. And then he got worked over by Rory Mark Rory McDonald. It wasn't even competitive. So he's going to win top in money, even though he's got clear holes in his game, and he doesn't have a big enough fan base to sell the fight. It doesn't make sense to me. True, true. Okay, good breakdown there. So, um, let's see, let's see, let's see. That was one of the news stories that kind of stood out to me. We also talked about Nganu stepping away. The other story I wanted to talk about was the idea that um, Demetrius Johnson wants to fight. If he was to fight TJ Dillashaw, he wants to do it on a quote-unquote stacked card. Would you be interested in, let's say, if they bring the UFC back to New York sometime this year in a free title um, event again with DJ versus TJ as one of those um, title fights? Yeah, I'd be excited. I mean, it'd be the most competitive fight for Deep and DJ, and neither one of them can sell, and both of them need to have somebody somebody else on the, on the card to help them sell the fight. If TJ Dillashaw thinks he's very popular, he is not. DJ is popular to a certain segment, but he's not popular enough to people who put their money down for, for him to make any money off pay-per-views, off any sort of sponsorships, or uh, or uh, sales or contracts with the UFC. So they both need help. It's a great fight, but they both need help to, to uh, help fat in their pockets and, and fix their bottom line. So I think the best thing you can do is put it on with two popular champions, and you know they, their fight could be the, the high class, the high art, technical, strategical, athletic fight. The other fights can be more entertaining and have more sex appeal, but that, but TJ versus DJ will be the high class, snobby, hardcore MMA fan fight. But it's not a fight that sells, and so you have to surround them with guys who are popular so that they can make, so they can make money and the UFC can make money uh, headlining an event with them on. Yeah, man, I could definitely, uh agree with you there like it's 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 a fight that interests people but man it's an opportunity for them but i think the best capitalized opportunity is not put them as the main event but put them around let's say they did that fight in a flyweight women's title and we're not even that they would have to do that and like maybe like a heavyweight title fight and maybe like a lightweight like yeah seriously like they have to this is not that that would be a major opportunity to get the winner of that fight over, especially if it's um, if Demetrius got got the win there, and uh, that that like that would be almost like their last shot, you know, their last shot to really get this guy over um, if it's properly promoted and he performs. I don't think he's ever gonna get over. It's like it's like certain movies, and I like DJ, but the fact of the matter is, there's move there's movies, there's certain genre movies you like, certain genres of books, whatever. 
There's certain movies that I know are great movies. They're very well acted. They're great. They're great acting, great writing, great production, great cinematography. I won't watch it two or three times because it's not my type of movie. There's movies that are I, I admit are average at best, but I watch them repeatedly because they entertain me. I relate to them somehow. DJ is very good. He's very high class. He's very high level. He's very smart. He's he's, he's an assassin and a technician and a strategist and everything in there. But it doesn't mean people have to like you. And just because people do not like what you do does not make them dumb fans. It doesn't make them ignorant. It doesn't mean they can't appreciate good fighting. They just don't like you. I am technical. People like him. People just don't like DJ. And the people who do like him do not show up at events and fighting and come out of their houses to, to fill up. He can't get 10,000 people to fill up the stadium for him. So it's not anything personal against them. They just—it's nothing. They just—they don't relate to him. They don't like his style. It doesn't matter. They do not relate to him. There's no need to insult people for not liking him because there's tons of things we don't like. There's certain kinds of music that DJ doesn't like just because he doesn't like it. He knows it's good. He knows it's well produced. He doesn't like it. Nobody has to like what you do, no matter how well you do it. And some people seem to get off on insulting fans. Well, they don't know what mixed martial arts is. It doesn't matter what mixed martial arts is. It matters what people like. It's like. Lots of people can make a good song, very few people can make a hit song. Lots of people can make good movies. Good movies come out every year. How many people make blockbuster hit movies? He is a very high-level, well-developed fighter. He's not a superstar. And it's going to take something dramatic for me to think anything otherwise. If it takes this fight with Dillashaw to even get him over a little bit, that just proves my point. Conor McGregor sold money, sold, broke records, fighting the seventh-ranked lightweight in the world, who had only won one fight in the past three years. He broke records doing that. DJ, if DJ has to fight the be another pound-for-pound -pound guy who, who beat the best guy in his division just to sell a little bit, that just proves my point. And there's nothing wrong with it. You don't like everything. You don't like every show you like. You don't like every fighter. You don't like every movie. You don't like every book. You like what you like. Same thing with DJ. Some people just aren't going to like him. He can't control that, and that's just the way it's going to be. I'm sorry, and I, I don't feel bad about that, and I don't feel that you should insult other people because they don't lean in his favor. Yeah, there was I was watching a show a while back where they kind of described it as like an, an elitism type of way, like uh, like a, almost an, an MMA snob type of way of looking at it as if like, oh, you don't like DJ, then you're not a real MMA fan. You know, everyone has their own, their own taste and their own interests, so I'm not going to um, disagree with you there. Yeah, I mean, that's all it comes out. And once again, he always says, you know, I want the respect. You don't want the respect, dude. You want the money. Nothing wrong with saying it. You want the same thing Conor McGregor does. You want popularity so you can get big payday. Doesn't make you any less of a martial artist. You can still be a true martial artist and want to get paid. Conor McGregor is a martial artist. He wants to get paid. Everybody wants to get paid. Why don't we just be upfront about that? But certain ones of us are going to have leverage. Certain ones of us aren't. And I don't understand why he complains, because it's the same thing me and you face in the real world. There's certain jobs we're not going to get because we don't come across a certain way, we don't look a certain way, we don't appeal to a certain group of people. Certain jobs, women, experiences we're not going to be able to have. It doesn't change just because you're, you're a fighter. But that, it's that, everybody suffers for that in life. Conor McGregor is super popular, but there's people who will never like him no matter what he does because of how he comes across. DJ's not exempt from that just because he's the best fighter in the world. You're not exempt from the rules that the rest of us have to live by. Nobody is. So just Nobody make is. the best of the situations you can and go from there. There's no need to be bitter. You're still going to be the best guy in the world. You're still the most title defenses. You're still pound for pound number one. I mean, you're not going to be the highest paid or most popular. 
okay, well, welcome to life for the rest of us who live in this world. But we also are not the most highest paid, we're not the best fighters, and we're not the most popular. You get to be one of the three. You're right, you get to be one of the three there. So let everyone know what you're working on this week. Man, I saw some of your work come out this uh, earlier today. I definitely enjoyed it. What else are you working on? Uh, I haven't really got it. I'm thinking about doing an article about it'll probably it'll, it'll be based around Paige Van Zandt and, and Ganu and it's going to be kind of addressing how I feel their camps kind of failed and it's going to be kind of a refresher course of what a camp in a corner is supposed to do because I feel like both teams let their fighter down. They have two of the more athletically gifted fighters in their division and they have found a way to turn them from competent fighters to essentially incompetent fighters in a matter of like three or four months, year to year to six months. And I'm gonna address that. Uh, other than that, the only thing I had was the article on Caitlin Kukagian on CombatPress.com and the article that I'm very proud of discussing the good, the bad, the ugly of Justin Kitch's game um, on MMA ratings. I'm particularly proud about that one because it's it's honest, but it's very it's honest, and I think it's fair, but it's also very pointed. And I think a lot of guys, a lot of guys will temper their arguments and their assessments because they want access. I want access to. I want fighters to come on. I want their agents to come on. I want their coaches to come on. But I'm not going to shortchange an assessment or lie for a fighter so that I can get them on the show and just be on the good side and just talk about how great they are. That's 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 not what that doesn't happen with me. That doesn't happen on the podcast. Doesn't happen in my articles. If you're crappy in one area and you got you got crappy cage IQ and you make bad decisions and you lean on your athleticism too much, I'm gonna say it because it's true. If you don't like it, fix your fight game. You know you be critical of my writing, but facts are facts, and people who know better and people who understand the fight game know I know what I'm talking about. So I'm always proud of it when I can make uh, an article. I can be very pointed in my article because I think more, too many guys try to be friends with fighters and friends with coaches and not give honest assessments, which is why you keep seeing the same breakdown from multiple sites and multiple writers. They're just, they, they, don't want to, they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to have to answer any tough questions. I don't mind answering tough questions. You know, I'll have that argument with the coach. And it, we've had multiple coaches on here and they may not agree with me, but they respect where I'm coming from because they know, I, they know what I'm talking about. I'll have the argument with a fighter. I don't, I don't have a problem with that, but I'm not going to shortchange readers or myself by making a favorable, favorable analysis just so that you'll come on the show or just so that you'll retweet my art, my article. You don't like what I'm saying about your fight game? You're the one in control. You can go out and prove me wrong every time, every time you go out there. But if you don't, because you can't, because of the things I mentioned, then just own up to it and say, hey, you made a good read. Maybe that's something I need to address moving in the future. Very true, my good man. Very true. Um, as with you, man, I got quite a bit to work on this week. There's a pretty huge grappling event going on in Sao Paulo um, that I will be covering. I got that. I got an interview coming up with Gary Gioni on Sunday, who is a grappler, a high-level grappler that I know that's competing next weekend. I got that to cover. Got some professional wrestling stuff to cover with the Royal Rumble this weekend. Um, a couple of things to, to kind of recap the Carolina Panthers season. I, I just put up some work on Michael Chandler. May do another one today as well, too. So, man, it, it, it's going to be busy, and we're going to stay busy, but we're going to get it, too. Yeah, I'm just being – I'm not going to call you Raphael. I'm just going to be busy. Yep. That's your name. That's my name for now, man. I, 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 
I'll take it. I will take it. I'll take it all day, every day, man. But with that in mind, yo, we had almost a two-hour show today. It's funny. We had a hell of a, we had a busy weekend last weekend. We got a busy weekend this weekend. But two-hour show, great content as always, man. I, I, I thank you for having for coming on, and uh, let's get back at it next week. Yeah, thank thank you all the fans who listened to it. Uh, thank you for listening to last week's episode, and especially for listening to our our interview with um, Arlene. We actually got some pretty good numbers off that interview. We will be bringing more interviews to you, and um, we just appreciate everything you do. Look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, um, and Apple. And excuse me, iTunes and YouTube as well. Sorry. No problem. No problem there, man. So um, thanks again, and we will be back next week. All right, guys. Have a good night. Have a great one.